The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning, church. Weren't those baptisms awesome? If you weren't here, it was uh, cold. Um, the water wasn't, but it was cold. And, and, and somebody said to me, why didn't we do baptisms this week? And I said, because it's warm. And that's just not how we roll, right? It's got to be cold. So um, I'm grateful for that. Grateful for uh, those of you who are baptized. If you, by the way, if you have not yet been baptized as a believer, uh, we'd love to baptize you. We don't have like scheduled times. We will fill that tank any Sunday that somebody wants to get dunked. And so if you want to get dunked, you just let me know. We'll do it. It'll be awesome. Uh, but with that being said, would you please open up your Bibles to James chapter four? If you brought your own, and I hope you did, open up to James four. Uh, If you need a Bible, there are hardback black Bibles under every single chair, and you can open those up to James. Uh, James chapter 4 is on page 1012 in those Bibles. You can open a phone or a tablet, though I think it's better for you to actually read from paper every once in a while. Okay, so maybe do Bible on paper. If you're online with us, good to have you. You can click that little Bible tab. Uh, Many of you are online, and so we, we love you as well. We are in James chapter 4, and we've said it, this whole sermon series, James is basically addressing one question in this letter. I know know maybe it feels like every week it's the same sermon with just different edges of illustrations. That's kind of what we're, we're seeing in James. He's addressing basically one thing, and that's this. How do you know if you have genuine faith? Like, how do you know if that faith that you have is genuine? If you, if you really believe in Jesus Christ, James is saying, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look a certain way. And that's what he's been talking about. So w- remember where we just came from by way of recap, okay? Last week, James compared and contrasted two types of wisdom, okay? Like this humanly, earthly, worldly wisdom, and then godly wisdom, this wisdom that is from above. And I hope you remember that this human wisdom, this worldly wisdom, uh, it was animated by three things. Do you remember what they are? The world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Those three things are, are kind of the animating forces behind all human wisdom. And those we also called enemies of our soul. Those three things are kind of the enemies out to get us. And they're like a headwind, okay? They're like this oppositional, oppositional force that's kind of blowing in our faces, working against you as you try to run the race of faith. That human wisdom is blowing in your face and it causes sometimes each and every step of your faith journey to be a struggle, okay? And those three enemies, uh, they're really, if, you, if we think about it, they're all self-centered. They're all you-centered. It's about you diving into the world and it's about you caving into your flesh and it's about you believing the lies of the devil. And here's a few of the things that I said last week about that human wisdom. This is all going to set us up for today. I said that human wisdom, it wants you to follow your heart, right? It it wants you to speak your truth, to be true to yourself, to like, like the whole, the whole mantra of the worldly wisdom that we live in right now is you do you, right? We talked about that. And, and and so we, we define that as uh, the idea that self, that you are the new God. Each one of us In our worldly kind of wisdom, like self has become the new God. You have become the default authority for all things pertaining to you. And that's a problem because listen to me, you make a terrible God. You make, a t- you make a terrible, terrible God. The Bible will support me on this, I promise. Okay, look at, uh, actually, I'll put these on the screen. Jeremiah 17 says this, the heart which is kind of the center of the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew mind of your being, okay? So the center of who you are, the heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, you might think that he's talking about your roommate's heart, right? You might think he's talking about your husband's heart or your sister's heart or your mother-in-law's heart, right? Theirs is desperately sick, but not yours, right? Not your heart. Um, But Jeremiah is actually talking about you. 
He's talking about you and you and me. Our hearts are desperately sick. We are deceitful. And now hear me. That means that if you are your God, then you have a sick God. Like if you are the ultimate authority over your own life, then you are desperately sick and wicked and the sovereign over your world is in a heap of mess. I mean, seriously, how many of you have gotten the advice given to you? Hey, just follow your heart, right? Like I was born right on the edge, the kind of the beginning edge of the self-esteem movement, which meant that my parents told me I could be whatever I wanted to be when I grow up, just had to apply myself and I can, you just do whatever you want to do. Just follow your heart. I think in elementary school, they had posters of like cats in space and it's like, follow your heart. That's why I've got some issues, okay? <laughs> and listen, they probably meant well, but that's the worst piece of advice you can give anybody. Follow your heart is really, really bad advice. Because when I was a youth pastor, I would hear like well-meaning parents tell their teenagers, hey, just follow your heart, right? Oh, please don't tell your teenagers this. Follow your heart. Just think about your heart as a teenager, is that something you want to, I'm looking at some of you teenagers in here. Is that something you want to follow? I mean, you really want your teenagers to do that. Here's what Jesus actually says about our heart. Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You don't want to follow that. You don't want to follow that. Today, James is going to take a, a bit of a deeper dive into the, the world's biggest problem, and it's you. I'm going to call this sermon, You, okay? That's the title of this sermon, You. And James is going to show us some things about you that you might not want to hear, but they're the only way to save you from you, okay? You. Let's dig into the text. James chapter 4. We're going to jump in. Uh, to verse 1, James 4, 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay. James, again, begins this section with a rhetorical question. He loves to do this through his book, these rhetorical questions. He's not actually asking you the question. That's what a rhetorical question, I mean, remember high school English class, a rhetorical question is not meant to be answered. It's meant to be like, of course, right? So that's what he says. He says, hey, all this conflict, all these fights among you, where is it coming from? Where is it coming from? And he's essentially saying, hey, it's not from your roommates, it's, it's not from your siblings or your spouse. All that conflict, it's not from your crummy upbringing. Your parents wrecked you, and so that's why you've got all this conflict. No, it's not from your job. It's not from your circumstances. It, listen to me, it's not even from your wounds, how you've been wounded. It's not from what's been done to you, as horrible as it might be. It's not even because of the suffering and the trials that you've been through. No, where all this conflict is coming from is from you. That's, that's what James is starting. He says it's from your passions. Now the word passions, if we read it in the Greek, uh, it's sometimes translated passions. In other translations, it's might, it might, yours might say pleasures or even appetites. Your appetites, your pleasures, your passions. In the Greek, it's actually the word where we get the English term hedonism. Hedonism. So he says that you have these passions, these appetites, this hedonistic self-pleasure bent that are at war inside of you. And this is how it's linked then to last week's discussion. There's this war of two, of two wisdoms within you, and now you've got these passions that are in war inside of you, within you. And it's going to be my first point this morning about you. Here's the first point. You are your problem. You are your problem. This is a good self-esteem building sermon today, okay? Just so you're aware. You are your problem. It's, it's not really what's going on around you that's causing strife and quarrels and things like that. 
It's not your husband or your wife. It's not those crazy kids, right? It's not your jerk of a boss or that neighbor who is driving you crazy. None of those things are your biggest problem. They might be problems, okay? This is why we have counselors. But you are your problem. It's not something that's going outside of you. It's something that's going on inside of you. So I'll quote G.K. Chesterton, okay? His famous quote when asked, what's wrong with the world? His famous quote is that he answered, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. You are, especially this guy right here, okay? They're wrong with the world. James is gonna, sh- is gonna show us That's my father-in-law, okay? Uh, (laughs) James is going to show us that when you seek to fill your own passions and your own pleasures and your own appetites, it's going to lead to internal anxiety for you and conflict, external conflict all around you. Both of those things are going to happen when you do you. And it's a problem, okay? It leads places. Let's look at verses two and three. This is James. He's going to keep elaborating on this. Here's what he says. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So in those two verses, he brings up these two ideas, okay? These two terms. The first is he says, you desire, that's the first term, you desire and do not have. And sometimes that's translated, you lust and you do not have. You desire and you do not have. And don't think lust just in terms of sexuality. Lust is just, I want that. It's not mine, but I want that. That's what he's saying, So this term implies a strong, unhealthy craving to secure something that's not yours. You desire and you don't have. It's this, I've got to have that thing. I'm not going to be content until I have this. I need to secure this. That thing's going to make me happy. That's that first idea. The second term he says is you covet, but you cannot obtain Now, covet can sometimes be translated, you envy. And it's a little bit different. You envy and cannot obtain. Coveting is having negative feelings towards someone else for what they have. It's not even necessarily that you don't, that you want what they have. It's that you don't like that they have it and that you don't. It's this envying. So it's, why did they get that? Why did they get that? They don't deserve that. How come they have that kind of marriage? How come their kids seem to be doing okay? How come their job pays them that much money? They don't work as hard as I do. And you start to covet others. So you being your problem shows up in these sinful desires and in covetousness. And, and, and just as way of illustration, here's one of the ways that you can know if you're veering into sinful desires and covetousness. The, the question is this, how much do you compare yourself to others? This is a huge temptation for us all. How much do we compare ourselves to others? I'll say it like this. We have more than anyone else has ever had in the history of the world, and yet we want more than anybody else has ever wanted. You have more than, listen to me, 99% of humanity in history, even if you're living in a one-bedroom shack of an apartment, even if you're a poor college student, okay, you have more than historically 99% of humanity has ever had, and yet we just are not satisfied. We hunger, we're coveting, we look at people around us and we want their life, and we want their job, and we want their spouse, and we want to look as good as they look in stretchy pants, right? I want to take their car from their house, go on their vacation, and have their social media likes. I want all of that. One of the big ways this comparison happens is obviously on social media, okay? Right? Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, right? Y'all younger people, I don't, I have no TikTok. Don't even know what that is. I know that I'm supposed to dance and that's not a good thing for me. So I'm not going to do it. But 
And if some of you, by the way, if, when I talk social media, some of you are like, well, I'm on a social media high horse here. I don't have any of those silly Facebook things. Well, okay, hold on. You're probably prone to the original social media, to the original comparison of yourself to others, which is looking out your window and seeing other people and comparing yourself to them. It's just not a digital version of it, okay? So it exists for all of us. But, but let me just say, what you're doing when you compare whether it's online or it's with your neighbor or your friend or your brother or your sister or whoever it is. What we do when we compare ourselves to other people is that we compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about them. You know all of the nitty gritties about you and you only know what they show you about them. And that's toxic. So if you are a social media person, okay, and I'm not anti-social media, follow me on that stuff. I look great on Instagram, okay? <laughs> I mean, I just look awesome, all right? So, but, but listen, the reality is when you're looking at that stuff, you're comparing your B-roll up against someone else's highlight reel. Because you know your B-roll. You know the mediocrity of your life. Listen, it's wonderfully awesome to just accept that you're mediocre. I know that feels like it goes against the grain of everything that every teacher's ever told you, but like, it's okay to be normal. Okay. You're comparing your B-roll up against their highlight role. And it's true. Cause if you follow me on Instagram, I promise you, I look way better than I really am. Okay. Right now we have a puppy. We just got a puppy. So all my Instagram posts are incredible, Right. Have you ever seen an ugly puppy? No, you haven't. No, you haven't. That's why you can't adopt them. You can only adopt the older ones that get ugly, right? Like that's, so, so my puppy is adorable. And so my Instagram is full of pictures of a puppy. But you know what didn't make the gram? Mabel barking for three hours in the middle of the night, right? Mabel crying in her kennel at two in the morning, waking the whole house up. Mabel walking into the, into uh, our, our living room, looking at me and then squatting and pooping on my floor. Okay. At two in the morning, I'm not like, oh, she's barking again. Get the phone out. Got to hit this on Instagram live, right? Oh, she's messing on my floor again. Better grab the phone. We got to, we got to remember this. I'm not sharing those things. But what you do when you compare yourself to anybody else is you're comparing yourself to, hear me, a fake family. You're comparing yourself to a fake family, okay? My, listen, my Instagram account, it's based on real life, but it's not real. It's like, will you ever watch those movies where it's like based on a true story and then it's kind of like not at all? <laughs> That's essentially what Instagram is. That's what social media is, okay? So here's the truth. There are a there's a family with three Martins, two dogs who all live together and go on adventures. That's true, but what you see is the edited version of that. It's just too good. It's too good. And it's so problematic for us to compare ourselves to fake realities. So James says, hey, all that conflict, all this stuff, it's because you're warring against yourself. You covet, you want, you desire, and you can't have. You're envious and you can't get that. And then what does he say that you do? Well, he, he says that you murder and you fight and you quarrel. Now, if you're like, well, I haven't murdered anybody, just remember, okay, he's quoting a lot of his brother Jesus in this. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, if you have heart, uh, hate in your heart, you've committed murder. So don't think you're off the hook if you haven't actually killed somebody. If you actually have any sort of hate in your heart, which all of us have at some point towards someone, then you've murdered and so what James is saying is, hey, you hate people, you fight, you quarrel, you do whatever it takes to get what you want. And the common denominator in all of these things is you. You do this, you do that, you hate, you quarrel. You are your problem. You are your problem. And then James says, hey, you, you don't even ask for the things that you're coveting, right? You don't even ask me for them. Oh, and by the way, when you do ask me for them, you don't receive them because you're asking wrongly for your own motives. It's all because you want to spend, he says this, spend it on your passions. Same word, hedonism, pleasures, 
appetites. It's all about you. It was all about you 2,000 years ago, by the way. It's not something that's new. It's all about you. And we manipulate God as a kind of vending machine precisely for the purpose of self-gratification. You are your problem. You, God, just give me what I deserve. Listen to me, you don't want what you deserve. You think you deserve something? You do not want what you deserve from God. So James says this in verse four. It only gets worse. (laughs) You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So so James, he calls those in his churches. Remember, he's preaching to Christians. He's preaching to members of his church here who have been scattered. And so he calls those who are behaving so selfishly within his covenant community uh, an intentionally insulting address. He calls them adulteresses. You adulterous people. This is language from the Old Testament that the prophets used to use when talking about Israel being unfaithful to God. We might need to bleep this one out, but he essentially calls them whores. That's not too strong of language here. He calls them adulteresses, whores. And he says that because they're cheating on God. They're cheating on God. The text says they are pursuing friendship with the world. Now, now we don't live in a day and age where friendship is valued the same way it was in the first century, or that would pack more of a punch for us, okay? Because back to our time and, and back to social media again, the internet has freed us up to feel like we're connected to people in a way that, by the way, was defined as illegal and stalking 10 years ago. You realize that? The things you know about people used to get you locked up? It was defined as stalking not a decade ago. Oh, look what they had for lunch. Wow. Oh, where were they? Who were they with? Who's he dating? Oh, that girl? Let's check her out. Click. Oh, let's look at her life. Oh, she graduated from that school? What? Oh, I guess that's her brother. Let's see what he looks like. That's creepy. It's voyeurism, right? Completely socially acceptable. I mean, it carries this, I kind of, like, I know them. I know them feel. You ever say that? Well, I've got this friend. I've got this friend who lives in that town. When was the last time you talked to them? Two decades ago. Really? Do you remember what her maiden name was? Uh, I can't remember. Not so sure. I know she's got three kids. Oh, have you ever met them? No, that's creepy. But that's how friendship is designed, uh, d- d- defined today. You don't know them, by the way. Okay, most of the people that you follow, you don't know. You're not really friends. You're close acquaintances at best, and they might actually be freaked out if they knew how much you learned about them, not from contact or conversation, but just stalking them quietly on the internet. But you see, friendship in the first century was very different. It was very different. It was taken far more seriously than it is today. Friendship was a lifelong pact between people. It was shared values and loyalties. It was vastly more important than it is today. And that's why in response to their friendship with the world, James calls them adulterers. He calls them adulterous people because of their friendship with the world. He says, if you're intimate like that with the world, if you've got that kind of intimacy with the world, that's enmity to to God. Enmity means hostility or hatred. You cannot be yoked to the world and to God. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. That's James. He's saying you can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. This is, again, pointing to you the fact that you are your problem, not others, okay? And then he goes, verse five. Verse five. It doesn't get much better. Uh, 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So James has been talking about you and he's calling you an adulterer and he's calling you the problem. And now he kind of turns to God's perspective on this, this this whole friendship with the world thing or being an adulterer thing. And James says that God's response to you being an adulterer is this. He's jealous. He's jealous. Now we have to do a little work there because again, we use jealousy as in he's jealous of her. She's jealous of him, but that's different. We are not talking about a God who is jealous of us. No, God is jealous for us. And jealous of and jealous for are two completely different things. I'll illustrate this. Before I met my wife, she's back in kids ministry, so I just pointed to my mother-in-law. That was not how it worked. But before I met Marcy, I had been in other relationships with other women, with other gals, okay? And Marcy, by the way, had been in other relationships with other guys before she met me. And, and, and so we had both kind of had some love in our past, romantic love in our past. But at our wedding day, August 4th, 2007, on that day, I, that, I didn't even write that down in my notes. Are you proud? Thank you. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> But at our wedding day, okay, we made vows declaring that for the rest of our lives, here's exactly the words we said, we will forsake all others. That's the vow that we made on our wedding day, that that we would forsake all others. Now, imagine with me for a second, what would happen if I had kept a box of all the mementos from the gals that I dated before my wife? Just had a box, the X box, okay? Okay. And then whenever I felt sad, like whenever I felt sad or I wanted to celebrate or like deal with a moment of insecurity or struggle, I went to the Xbox and I pulled, see, it's video games. It's, it's, it's not meaning to overlap like that, right? But I, go, I pull that box out and, and I dredge up memories, either good memories or bad memories of previous relationships to kind of deal with my emotional unrest. How do you think my marriage would be going right now? You think Marcy would be like, thumbs up to the Xbox, bro. No chance. No chance. Why? Because all lovers are jealous. All lovers are jealous for the one they love. There's a healthy kind of jealousy that is birthed in love. I'm jealous for my wife because I love my wife. I'm jealous for my six-year-old daughter because I love my six-year-old daughter. And if anybody tries anything to turn them from my love for them or to harm them, you would see a different side of Chris. You'd see a different, I would fight. I would, I would do things. I, I always say this, I'd get arrested and I'd start a prison ministry from the inside, okay? Because I'm jealous for them. This is how God is described when it comes to you cheating on him. He's jealous for you. James is saying, hey, you've got to pick You have to pick friendship with the world or friendship with God. You've got to pick intimacy with the world or intimacy with your heavenly father because he's a jealous God and he will not share you. He's jealous for you because he loves you, because he created you, because he called you, because he saved you. He loves you. He's a jealous God. And he will not share you with anyone or anything that would pull you away from him. So James is going to turn a little bit here. He's kind of just punched and punched and punched. You're the problem, right? You're a mess. You've got friendship with the world. God's jealous for you. And now he turns the page. Look at verse six. But... Praise the Lord. We always say that praise the Lord for butts in the Bible, okay? But 
he gives more grace. Oh, if you highlight or mark or underline, maybe even do it in the church Bible, I don't care. That's one to underline. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a great verse right there. That's a life kind of verse. That's a stick it on your mirror kind of verse. Brush your teeth, look at that verse. He gives more grace. Because if you're reading the same text as me, you're reading those first five verses and you're kind of thinking, dang, I'm an adulterer. Dang, I'm, I'm, I'm building this friendship with the world. I mean, goodness, I love Jesus, but I just kind of keep cheating on him. Like, if you're honest with yourself, you might get there. I've been unfaithful to him. Anyone else? Anyone feel that? No? Just me? Somebody should come up here and take the face mic then. I'll hand it over, okay? No, we all fall short. That's what this is saying. So listen, I don't know how you dragged your sorry self in here today. I don't know how you did that. Okay, maybe the idea of God yearning jealously for you to redeem you, to save you, you've got no category for that. Maybe you've got no, you, you think he's done with you. You think you've outsinned him. You think the things that you've done or the things you've participated in or the things done to you or the way that you've lived has made it to the point where he couldn't possibly accept you. But this text is saying that regardless of how loud or vile the volume of sin is or has been in your life, no matter how loud that is, he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. It's not that grace wins by a hair. Grace wins by a landslide in this one. Grace blows sin out of the water. Okay? Grace, it hits the showers, it gets dressed, it talks to the media, and it has a steak dinner before sin even crosses the finish line. That's what he's saying. There's more grace. It's the good news of the gospel. He gives more grace. How, listen to me. How does God respond to our adultery? To whoring around with the world? He does it by turning up the volume of grace so loudly that the volume of our rebellion is no longer heard and, oh, by the way, eradicated entirely. But he gives more grace. You know, hold on to that one. This is the good news of grace. So now James tells us what our response should be to that grace. Okay, look at verse seven. We're gonna go seven through 10 here. Here's what he says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There's more grace for you. Submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In response to you being your problem, the solution is that you must submit. You must submit. He gives more grace. But you gotta take it. You gotta receive it. You have to submit to him. So I've been in pastoral ministry since, uh, I started in 2003 as an intern, okay? So more than 18 years now uh, at doing kind of church ministry. And I've seen that there are people in churches all over the place, all over the place, even here today. There are people in churches all over who really want to follow Jesus. Like, I mean, they would say, I'm a Christian. I'm a born again Christian. They would make that profession, but they've made no steps at all in submitting to him. No, no real tangible steps. No, no real tangible move towards 
obedience to what he commands of a Christian. Okay, so maybe you've been at this thing for five or 10 or 20 or 30 years and you feel that Jesus is your savior. But simultaneously, you have no submission to him, like no tangible evidence that you have changed more into the likeness and image of Christ. Then the answer that James is laying up there is that you're not a friend of God. You're you're in friendship with the world. You've not submitted to him. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect in our obedience to Jesus. I mean, goodness of all people, I have personally put on display many times that we all have lots of work to do. That there's more grace needed in order for us to fully submit to him. God has used many times in my life, sometimes in public and forceful ways to get me on my knees before him. But my question is this, and you have to do work on your own heart in this. Do you have any desire to submit to him? If you look at your Christian life, can you point to any real, tangible submission? How do we submit? Well, James lays it all out there really clearly for us. He gives us five ways to submit. We could do a sermon on each one. I'll save it, okay? We won't. But for the sake of time, how do you submit? He says this in verse 7. You resist the devil. Remember the lies of the enemy? Remember from last week, how do we fight the lies of the enemy? With the truth of God's word. How do you resist the devil? You live in God's word. You read God's word. You meditate on God's word. You eat this thing up. It's got to be everything to you. In the Greek, that resist word, it connotates aggression. Like militant aggression. Resist, stand firm. Fight against the devil. He, listen, there are times where, where biblically, okay, uh, God will tell us to flee from some stuff. Like we don't have what it takes to fight, so we better run. One of the ways that he tells us to do that is in sexual immorality. When encountering sexual immorality, when encountering sexual temptation, he's not like, hey, stand and fight. He's like, turn your tail and get out of there. But to the devil, Satan, Lucifer, you stand and you fight You don't run, you don't try and make it to safe ground. You pull out your sword and you engage him head on. And remember what the sword was, the word. You fight him with the word. You resist the devil with the word of God. That's the first thing you do to submit. Are you doing that? Second thing in verse eight, you draw near to God. It says you draw near to him, you pursue him. All right, if if when we fight the devil, the devil actually flees from us, then we run to Jesus. The devil is running from us when we fight him with the word. We run to Jesus when we fight him with the word. We draw near to him. And we primarily do this through spiritual disciplines. Okay, I know we talked about this last year. We did a whole spiritual disciplines sermon series. And I'll just talk about the last two that we talked about last week real quick. But again, you draw near to God through the word. This is why reading your Bible is so important. This is why being in Bible study and being in a Bible preaching church is so important. In a constant diet of the word. And then we do this in community. We do this together. It's not good enough for you to read your Bible in your dorm room. It's not. You need people around you, church community, helping you draw near to God, the word in the church. Third thing he says is that he says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Okay, this is what I said last week about putting sin to death. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. I'm sorry if I scared any of you with my, per- my Puma murder illustration last week. If, I, if, if you're scared or scarred or need counseling because of that, I apologize, okay? But I stand by it. You gotta kill sin, Puritans called it mortifying your flesh. You got to do that hard work to cleanse your hands, to purify your hearts. You confess and you repent your sins. Fourth, this one's weird. He says mourn. That one kind of made me stumble this way. Like you have to mourn? This one may seem strange, but I think James is calling his listeners to make a public display of their repentance. This one flies in the face of like, hey, just between you and God right now, let's do a little work in your little God chamber. 
and like confess and repent. He says, mourn. Now for us, we think mourn, we think like a funeral and we think, ah, like personally grieving some sort of loss. That's mourning. But that's not what mourning is. Mourning is a public display of your sorrow. It's an outward showing of the distraught feelings that you experience over a brokenness or a loss. So mourning in the Bible, it's not just personal, okay? When a loved one died, Jewish funerals were days. They would mourn openly. They would tear their clothes. They would put ashes on their head. They would actually sometimes hire in professional mourners to come mourn the dead with them publicly. They would wail. It was loud. We think of funerals and we think kind of quiet and somber. Not Jewish funerals. They were all out in mourning. And James is saying, once you realize the grievous nature of your sin, once you realize how dark you are, how fallen, how depraved you are, you'll be upset by it to the point where you'll show it. You'll show it. When you realize just how far you've gotten away from him, you will cry out publicly at the horror of it. And then finally, in verse 10, he says, humble yourself. That kind of caps it all off. It kind of bridges it in with when he said, uh, I talked about humility earlier. It's the conclusion of this thought, and it's the culminating idea of you submitting. Okay, listen, humble people submit. Proud people do not. Humble people submit. Proud people with pride in your heart, it's impossible to submit to God. Now, uh, Matt Chandler, when he talks about this passage, he brings up the story of the woman caught in adultery, and I just thought it was really fitting. So uh, in John chapter 8, in John chapter 8, if you've been raised in church, you probably know this story. But in John 8, Jesus uh, is encountering a woman, okay? And what, the, what, what John tells us is that the woman is caught in adultery and she's dragged naked into Jesus' presence with a crowd around and she's cast at the feet of Jesus. And the men who caught her say this to Jesus in John 8, verse 4. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So now, in this moment, this woman is guilty. It's not like a trial. Like, maybe she did commit adultery. No, she was caught in the act of adultery, which makes me think, what are the guys who caught her doing in that moment? Okay. I mean, that's questionable behavior at best, but, but she's caught. She's caught and she is guilty and she is drugged at the feet of Jesus. And with snot and tears and shame all over her, they say, what do you say, Jesus? What do you think we should do, teacher? And Jesus says this in verse seven, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the text goes on to say that from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and leave. And then Jesus picked up a rock and hucked it at her. No, no, no. No. I can't believe you would even think that. No, verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go. And from now on, sin no more. Now there's a lot of beauty in this story. But one of the things that strikes me in that story is that the men who drag her before Jesus are absolutely correct and just. By law, okay, by the law of Moses, by the Old Testament law that we ascribe to, we hold to this thing, by God's law, she should die. 
I could point you to the verses. Stone and adulterer. It's biblical. Her guilt is never in question. It's, it's never in question. It's visible for all to see. She is an adulterer. She is her problem, right? But in the most shameful and despicable moment of her life, Jesus looks at her in the face and says, you're not condemned. Where are they? Nobody throwing a stone at you? Neither will I. He gives more grace. It's in our heartbrokenness over our sin that our jealous God gives more grace to the humble. I mean, this is the type of grace that brings about humility that that James says God exalts. He lifts up the humble. He exalts the humble. It's the humble that he knows. It's the humble that he draws near to. It's the humble that the Lord loves. Now, verses 11 and 12 are kind of a throwback idea uh, to us working on our speech and not discriminating. It's kind of like an application. And so I I just want to skip over those, not because I don't love them, just because we're almost out of time. Uh, It's really practical outworkings. I would commend you to maybe talk about those in your D groups this week. But I do want to end with the good news of this whole section for us. Because it feels like it's this hit, and it's this hit, and it's this hit, and it's this hit. But but here's the truth. If you realize that you're, you're your problem, if you realize that, and if you realize that you must submit, again, that's confession and repentance, then Jesus' words to the woman who's caught in adultery are for you. They're for you. Has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Go sin no more. That's the good news of this passage. The third point, you are not condemned. You are your problem. You must submit. But if you do, you're not condemned. You're not condemned. Romans 8.1. I know I'm preaching on James. I shouldn't quote Paul, but I'm gonna. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are not condemned. You are your problem, you must submit, but if you do, then you will not be condemned because Jesus was condemned for you. He gives more grace. So where do you find yourself today? Where do you find yourself? Do you feel yourself like this woman, just caught? Maybe it's not adultery literally, but but you feel yourself caught in friendship with the world. Maybe you've got some sort of kind of closet hidden sin in your life. And then you feel like today, it's not me preaching, it's like the Holy Spirit is kind of reading your mail to you. He's like saying, I see that thing. And it feels like you've been found out, like you've been dragged naked before him. Like there's no question of your guilt to all who is looking on that sin. And now nobody else may know about this, but he does. And you do. And you need to be free of that thing. You need to be free. Just think of the freedom that the woman feels after she leaves this scenario with Jesus. Think of the freedom at being justly murdered by a mob only to have a rabbi say, I don't condemn you. Go sin no more. Think of the weight off her shoulders. Think of the freedom that she felt. We all know the weight and the heavy burden of hidden sin in our lives. And I'm just saying you can be free of that today. He has not called you to be anything that he will not empower you to do. So what do you need to confess? What do you need to repent of today? How do you need to 
to submit to him today. Humble yourself, submit, do it, do it today. He's jealous for you. He loves you. He bids you come. And there's more grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we, I feel my heart warmed when I think about your grace. I feel my affections stirred for you when I think about your grace. I feel the desire to be near you and to draw closer and to have intimacy with you, Father, when I think about your grace. Lord, it makes me want to put to death my sin all the more when I think about your grace. And our brother James, Pastor James, he's, he's giving us words of encouragement. Yes, there's the hard word where we've been unfaithful, where we've been adulteresses. And yet there's the life-giving word that he jealously yearns for us to give us more grace. Spirit, I don't know who you're speaking to in this place, but we know that that you are the true preacher at Fathom Church, that the words that I say are merely vessel for you to do your work in, in hearts of men and women and students. And so today, Holy Spirit, we ask that you stir, that you move in us, where our passions, where our desires, where our hungers and our appetites are out of line with, with how you would have us live. Lord, I pray for conviction from your spirit, but not conviction that's heavy-handed, Lord. Conviction that says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No one is left to condemn you. Well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. But I pray as we reflect in the next few minutes, Lord, do that heart work in us. I pray this room is full of confession, full of repentance. I pray that there is freedom found from the bondage of sin that we are our problem, but that there need not be condemnation because you paid it all on the cross. Help us to understand that and live that out, Father. So we love you. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.